Welcome to Campfire History, The Emergence of Egypt, written and produced by myself, Brad Sutherland. In this episode, I'll be giving a brief narrative of the emergence of Egypt from nomads and pastoralists to a civilization occupying the Nile Valley from Aswan in the south to the Mediterranean Sea in the north, ruled by one divine king. When we think of the landscape of Egypt today, and of the Egypt of the pharaohs, we think of a golden desert and the wondrous blue of the River Nile. However, Egypt's climate and landscape was once very different. 10,000 years ago, Egypt was a savanna teeming with life, where humans could survive by hunting, herding cattle, and gathering the fruits, nuts, and cereals watered by the rains. But then gradually the rains fell less and less until the savanna land disappeared, leaving only a few scattered oases in the barren deserts. There is a site in Egypt's western desert that demonstrates the great contrast of life in Egypt before and after this great climate change. 100 kilometres west of the Nile and 800 kilometres south of Cairo, there is a site called Nabta Playa. Today it is just a barren desert, but if we were to visit Nabta Playa 6,500 years ago in 4,500 BC, then we would stand in a very different landscape. In 4500 BC, a settlement of huts lined in rows stood on the bank of a lake. The inhabitants of this lake herded cattle and seasonally brought their cattle to Nabta Playa to drink from the lake and graze in the surrounding land. The herders had to follow the seasonal rains and had to carefully choose when to depart to the next grazing spot. The importance of a calendar to the cattle herding tribes has been highlighted by an incredible archaeological discovery, a stone circle aligned to indicate when the summer solstice would occur, soon after which the summer rains would fall. These rains brought life and the tribes must have waited anxiously for them. Archaeologists have found the remains of sacrificed cattle covered with stone slabs with stone carvings, and it is thought that the cattle were sacrificed in gratitude to a god or gods for the life-saving rains. Such adoration to the cattle, which the tribes lived of, may even be the origin of the cult of Hathor in Pharaonic Egypt. The organisation needed within the inhabitants to be able to move these large stones many kilometres to Nabta Playa is not only highly impressive, but emphasises the importance of religion in the lives of the tribal culture and their willingness to make great contribution in terms of physical exertion and the sacrificing of their precious cattle. Comparisons between the endeavours of the people of Nabta Playa and the ancient Egyptian builders of colossal religious monuments are hard to avoid, albeit they must be made with extreme caution. In 4500 BC, the level of skill in stone architecture and carving was impressive, and the knowledge of the sun and stars from observing patterns through the generations displays an ingenuity to master the elements of nature and survive. However, in 4500 BC, the people of Nabta Playa were in great danger despite their advancements. The rains had been falling less and less and the savanna land was becoming very arid. The slow extermination of their way of life probably led to fierce competition for the remaining lands that could support life. To many, the only solution was to move east to the Nile Valley to where they had no doubt heard that it was possible to grow crops on the banks of the river where the river itself could irrigate the fields. The river now had been very swampy. However, in 4500 BC, it had been drying out for many centuries and humans had been planting crops of food on the fertile banks. 
They found that not only could the crops grow well, but they could grow more food than they needed to survive, and that this surplus could be stored in case of a poor harvest in the future, or that the surplus could be used to support non-farmers such as priests, craftsmen, builders, or even kings. To the inhabitants of Navdaplaya, though, the options were a little more limited. You see, to their east and their southeast, the river is very rocky. This makes the land very difficult to grow enough food to support large numbers. It may be that the land is not able to support large numbers and that the current inhabitants will fight to the death to protect their land from newcomers. To the northeast, though, the riverbanks can support a very large population. People will migrate more and more to these very fertile riverbanks and in about one and a half thousand years, one man will come to rule over the entire river north of the rocky first cataract. This man will be revered as a living god and a king of a unified Egypt. You may ask, but if Naldoplaya is outside of ancient Egypt, and its inhabitants perhaps never migrated to ancient Egypt to become Egyptians, then why is Naldoplaya so significant? To answer that question, I must take you forward in history. But before we leave 4500 BC, let's take a look at what is happening at other places in the Near East at this time. Let's start with the Nile Valley itself an area that will become ancient Egypt. The ancient Egyptians considered Egypt to be of two halves based upon the flow of the river Nile. The Nile flows from the south to the north and they called north downstream and they called south upstream. The Egyptians' lives were dominated by the river and their land was divided into upper Egypt of the south from Aswan to where the Nile spreads out over a wide floodplain which we call the Delta. This delta region was called Lower Egypt by the ancient Egyptians. The image of Egypt as two halves was very important to the ancient Egyptians, and I will be talking more about this when we discuss the unification of the two kingdoms. In 4500 BC, settlements are being built all along the Nile of Upper Egypt. The inhabitants here have a flourishing civilization which has been growing for at least 500 years. Although there is no evidence of a single king ruling over the whole of Upper Egypt at this time, a type of pottery, called Badarian pottery by Egyptologists, is found widespread throughout the region. This means, at the very least, there are links between the settlements, and this fosters trade, communication, and the exchange of cultural ideas, including stories of the gods. In South Mesopotamia, in an ancient land called Sumer, the process of cultural exchange in growing crops by irrigating the fields with the water from the rivers, Euphrates and the Tigris, has led to growing towns which support large populations. In Anatolia and the Levant, there have been towns growing crops for at least 5,000 years. In Jericho and the Levant, for example, a wall and a tower has been found from the 10th millennium BC. But no towns in 4,500 BC can match the size of the growing towns in Sumer. We will come back to Sumer later, but now I want to take you from Navdaplaya in 4500 BC forward in history to a city on the Nile in Upper Egypt called Abydos. As we move forward in history, the lands to the east and west of the Nile become drier and drier, gradually turning to desert, leaving only scattered oases for the few remaining pastoralists to eke out a hard living. As we pass 4000 BC and enter a new millennium, the pottery changes from Badarian to a new pottery type called the Quara One, which gives its name to a new type of culture. During this Nequada phase, burials get more and more elaborate in terms of grave goods, 
being that a elite class is emerging. Perhaps they were rich from trade or accumulation of land, but perhaps they are local rulers, who for each generation extend their rule before perhaps they become dominated by another ruler, either through political diplomacy or marriage, or simply by military conquest by the more powerful. By 3300 BC, the population of the Nile Valley is increasing at a greater rate. Egypt now enters a stage which archaeologists term Aquara III, and during this phase, the culture is found not only throughout Upper Egypt, but Lower Egypt as well. In Upper Egypt, though, three important towns have emerged with burials whose size indicate that they belonged to powerful people who were probably the local rulers, what we would call kings. The three powerful towns are Naquada, Hierakonpolis and Abydos. It is only at Abydos that these burials of powerful rulers continue uninterrupted into the period where Egypt becomes ruled by a single ruler. All the first dynasty kings of Egypt are buried there, as well as some of the second dynasty kings, even though they probably spent a lot of their time at the capital of Egypt, Memphis. Abydos in 3000 BC is an Egypt that we can recognise. If we stood on the banks of the Nile in the spring of 3000 BC, we would see the golden desert on either side of the shimmering blue Nile and on its banks crops of cereals almost ready to be harvested. The crops must be harvested before the summer monsoons in Ethiopia, which is far to the south, causes the Nile to burst its banks in Egypt and flood the fields. It is this flooding that is the secret to Egypt's fertility. When the floodwaters recede, the soil is black from the silt left behind by the floodwaters. This makes the soil very fertile, and it is possible with careful management to extract two crops per year from the soil. The people of ancient Egypt named their land after this black soil. They called Egypt Kemet, meaning black in ancient Egyptian. The desert they called Dejret, meaning red. In ancient Egyptian culture, there was often two halves to everything, a duality and a balance. The desert surrounds the fertile land and the contrast between the flooded fields and the desert could not be greater. It is possible to stand with one foot in fertile black soil, where abundant life can be sustained, and with the other foot in desert, barren of all life. The Egyptians saw their life as a fight for their organised way of life against the forces of chaos of the desert and foreign invaders. Egypt is nothing more than an oasis created by the River Nile, a land which Herodotus famously described as the gift of the Nile. Between 3100 BC and 3000 BC, ancient Egypt became ruled by one single king. Unfortunately, we don't have an exact date, and in different books you will see different dates depending on which chronology the historian believes is accurate. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to disappoint you. Because if you are waiting to hear how a noble king united Egypt and defeated his enemies in battle, the bad news is that we simply do not know how Egypt became ruled by one man. We have found important clues such as a mace head depicting a king called Scorpion, who is wearing the white crown of Upper Egypt and who has won a great victory in battle. Another important piece of evidence is the Narmer palette, which depicts a king called Narmer smiting his enemies and wearing the crown of Upper Egypt on one side and the crown of Lower Egypt on the other, but there is no text to tell us more. Does the scorpion macehead depict the final victory of Upper Egypt over Lower Egypt? Does the Narmer palette depict Narmer ruling both kingdoms and smiting all who oppose him? 
Unfortunately, we have insufficient evidence to solve who was the first king of all of ancient Egypt. What I can tell you is that the ancient Egyptians believed that Egypt had been ruled by mythical gods before a man called Menes unified the kingdoms of Upper and Lower Egypt, then made his capital at Memphis near the border of the two lands. But who was Menes? Was he the scorpion king from the Macehead? Was he Narmer, the king depicted wearing the crowns of both Upper and Lower Egypt on the palette? Both items were found at Hierakonpolis and had been placed there as objects of great importance to the Egyptians. Was Menes the king of the first dynasty? Aha! Uh -huh. A king whose elaborate tomb has been found at Abydos? The problem is that in ancient Egyptian, Menes simply means someone. Menes could be the scorpion king, Narmer, Aha, uh -huh, or simply a king called Menes. The mystery is confounded by the problem that the kings of ancient Egypt had more than one name. In the reign of the first two dynasties, the king had at least three different names, all of which depicted aspects of the king's powers. It is possible that Menes, Aha and Narmer are all the same person, however there has been a tomb found at Arbidos believed to be belonging to Narmer. It is very confusing, but from the archaeological evidence it is possible to piece together a possible picture of the process of the formation of a united kingdom of Egypt ruled by one king. In the Nequada III phase, which lasts from about 3300 BC to 3000 BC at the latest, the climate change is more rapid and the population expands as more people migrate to the Nile Valley. This increased population would have resulted in greater competition for land to grow food, and which resulted into expansion into less populated Lower Egypt. Because of the competition for resources, Villages and towns might have banded together under a chosen ruler to protect their lands from attack from neighbouring regions or groups of nomads from the desert. In the Nequada III phase, there are three main centres in Upper Egypt, at Nequada, Hieraconpolis and at Abydos. The continuance of tombs at Abydos and the fact that the first dynasty kings are all buried there indicates that Abydos won the battle for supremacy. This is supported by the claim of the Egyptian historian Maneto that the first rulers of a united Egypt came from Tinnis, which was the capital of the Abydos region. The battle shown on the Scorpion Mesed and the Narmal Palette may show crucial victories of upper Egyptian rulers as they conquered regions who had not yet submitted. The naming of Menes as the first king to rule upper and lower Egypt may just be that the founding of Memphis was an unforgettable and significant landmark in the process of domination and rule of one man over the whole of Egypt. From the archaeological evidence, it seems that there never was a lower kingdom. The earliest depiction of the red crown of the rulers of Lower Egypt has been found in art in Upper Egypt, and not a crown depicting another kingdom. An important document called the Palermo Stone lists kings reigning over a unified Egypt before being split apart and then reunified by Menes. That Egypt has been fully unified before Menes seems very unlikely given the archaeological evidence we have. So why does the Palermo stone portray such an idea? The answer is probably because the ancient Egyptians had a very unique way of viewing the world. To the ancient Egyptians, nature was a balance of two halves. Night and day, life and death, chaos and order, desert and fertile soil, East Bank and West Bank of the river, upstream and downstream, and of course, Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. The river was everything and shaped the Egyptians' view of life.
The natural order of Egypt was that the two halves of Egypt were to be reunified together. However, they could not be reunified if they had never been unified in the first place. So a past was conveniently invented. What great propaganda! What do you mean, lower Egyptian people, that you don't like to be ruled by kings from Upper Egypt? This is how things were in the past and how things should be. This is how the gods intended things to be. It is more than propaganda, though. The ancient Egyptians needed to make sense of their world. Tradition and religion helped them rationalise their existence. Their king was a living god and a link between their world of the living and another spiritual existence. When we look upon the depictions of the king on the Narmer palette and on the scorpion Mayside, we see that the king is depicted much larger than anybody else. This, of course, is very deliberate. In ancient Egypt, the king is Egypt. So why did I begin this podcast talking about Naphtaplaya, which is south of the border of ancient Egypt, and whose inhabitants may never have become ancient Egyptians? To me, there are two crucial elements in the formation of Egypt, and they remain crucial throughout all the pharaonic period of Egypt. The River Nile is the first crucial element. Without the Nile, Egypt would have been very thinly populated with life centred on the few oases. The second crucial element is the very strong religious beliefs, which in ancient Egypt resulted in a divine king for who they built huge monuments such as pyramids or tombs for. This is not so different from the people of Nautoplaya, who sacrificed the cattle which provides their food in gratitude for the rain, and then built elaborate tombs for their sacrifices to honour their gods. The ancient Egyptians and the people of Nautoplaya share similarities in their culture, and they are both people of great skill. The stone carvings in Nautoplaya and the stone circle are truly impressive. It is the River Nile, though, that is the catalyst in forging a magnificent civilization such as ancient Egypt. It allowed great numbers to live together in towns, where ideas could be shared and then transported easily up and down the river. The excess food produced allowed armies to be fed and other lands such as Nubia to the south to be conquered. In 4500 BC, the settlements of the Nile Valley are insignificant to the large cities of Sumer. 1,500 years later, both civilizations are the most advanced in the world. It is no coincidence that these civilizations are founded on rivers. I am awestruck by the wonders of the ancient civilization, but I am also awestruck by the stone circle and carvings of the people of Nautoplaya. Are these the ancestors of the ancient Egyptians who migrated to Upper Egypt? A clue may be found on the Narmer palette, where at the top are the heads of the goddess Hathor, who was a cow. Thank you for listening to this episode of Campfire History. The emergence of Egypt is a very complicated subject because the evidence that we have available is tantalising but insufficient. Writing a narrative is impossible and I hope to post a page on the website explaining why I have focused on the topics that I have chosen. The next episode will cover the early dynastic period of Egypt and the Old Kingdom during which the Great Pyramids were built.